walk into the room with your pencil in your hand. You see somebody naked in you. You say, who is that man? You try so hard, but you don't understand just what you will say when you get home. Because something is happening here, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? And like a kiss being blown, we are on the air for <laughs> another bull session. Um, this time on Joan Didion. And this is something that I've been wanting to do for a while. Ever since she died in December, I've been wanting to do it, um, some form of it, because I've been extremely frustrated with the way in which Joan Didion has been consecrated as this national grandma of letters in the later period of her life, uh, where she's been kind of, the, her identity as this uh, a national mourner which began with her book, Magical Thinking, and continued with Blue Nights and and kind of con- went on from there and hit its absolute depressing peak with this Netflix documentary, which I'm actually now glad that we've seen because we're going to discuss this. Because oh, it's I sort- watched it. It's, yeah. So with that documentary where um, you would learn if you watched that documentary that Joan Didion is this writer who whose husband died, and then her daughter died, and then she was sad. Don't forget the most important thing, that she's so sad that she forgets to eat. I was not going to forget that the next act... People have to coax her to eat. The next act was that she can't eat, and then, so in order to coax her into eating, they decide to make a play out of magical thinking on Broadway starring Vanessa Redgrave. In the course of rehearsing for this play, it appears they succeed in feeding Joan Didion a sandwich. She eats the sandwich, and the producers of the play are pleased. Later on, Barack Obama gives her an award, and thus you have been introduced to, um, and you've covered the entire career of Joan Didion, if you've been paying attention in the last five years, that is what you know of Joan Didion. Not what matters. But before we get into what matters, um, I'll introduce my my guest. Um, he is uh, he's uh, you know he likes to smell. He likes to dance. He's big in Texas. He's big in France. He is a host of La Parfum Nationaliste podcast. Le, le Nationaliste du Parfum. Ah, that's right. Big in France. We all know. Huge um, in France. And big in Texas. They and, only understand me in Europe. I mean, you know, like all the all the jazz greats who've been basically hounded out of the United States and had to find their success in Europe, like even like even like Alfred Hitchcock and even like and and uh who was it? What's the comedian that they love there? Jackie Mason. Um we talked about that before. Um mm-hmm. there the Oh Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis, Jerry Lewis, yeah. The yeah. Jerry yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so Jacques Masson is with us. Um, I assigned him slouching towards Bethlehem, the, uh, the best book that Joan Didion ever wrote. And the one that truly is timeless and is part of the, the, the canon, um, inclu- followed by the white album, which we may not get to, uh, on, on this occasion, but, um, we may just spill into it a little bit. Those two books are the books that matter that Joan Didion wrote. Um, they are a far cry from what she has been celebrated for in the last 20 years. I mean, those books are assigned and so on. Many people know about them. But they don't really know what's going on in those books. And apart from um, apart from diving into those books and inspiring specifically slouching towards Bethlehem in this, in this bull session. Um, I think it's really, it's, it's like, it's a really good time. I mean, if you've been listening to, to Filthy Armenian Adventures, you know that I've been quoting multiple times from slouching towards Bethlehem 
on multiple occasions because it has a certain part to play in the mythologizing of Los Angeles, not much of which has occurred in literature, and it's one of the places where it has occurred, and it is not a complete picture by any stretch, but it, it's a definitely, it definitely leaves an impression to everyone who reads it, and I first read it around sometime in college, and I was, I was especially, I was especially like, you know, galvanized by its obviously libertarian conservative point of view in, in exactly the sort of, um, used for exactly the sort of looking that, that I was using it at the time, which was not in the scoring of political points, but in an analyzing cultural insanity. More than that, it's a book that was written in a sort of period of cultural undoing and chaos, which feels very relevant to the one we're in the last two years. Um, Now, beyond that cultural chaos, beyond the 60s for which it stands as a testimony and a very witty testimony, there's also a secret, a personal secret that is being masked in that book. And I have long suspected what that secret is. And we're going to talk about that secret. Um, and it's a it's one that I just before starting to record this, I'd heard confirming rumors over the years here and there. A professor here, story here, story there. But then I just read, I just found a passage or whatever, a, the, the, a, a, something, something in her, a biography of Joan Didion from 2015, which just about absolutely confirms my feminine intuition about it this whole time. Couldn't be more relevant to the current thing that everyone has been talking about in America, in American politics over the last She's few weeks. She's a pedophile? Weeks. Ooh, it's not that relevant, but it's close. It's in the same, it's in the same category of uh, thing, you know. Okay. It's, it's a... It starts with the letter A. Um, but I don't want to get to that until later, because I think the first point is to first ask you... Wait, let me guess. She had an abortion just as in play it as it lays, and that's why she had to have the baby dropped on her doorstep and name it Quintana Roo? Spoiler alert. Did I just guess it correctly? Yeah, it's that she had an abortion. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That was what I was. That's what I was saving for the other end, and it, you just guessed it. And nice. Yeah. Well, listen. Twin Peaks gave away who killed Laura Palmer very early into the overall run of Twin Peaks. So if you think that that this is like you know, if you think that just because this plot point has been revealed so soon. That uh, we, you know, we, there isn't a lot more craziness coming. You haven't seen, you haven't seen, um, you haven't seen the Lynchian mind at work. Okay, well, there's a of lot. Of course, I guess that because my only familiarity with Joan Didion before this was play it as it lays. I read the book in high school and I uh, loved the movie, which is still very rare. Uh, Couldn't even find I, it, which I had taped off of. I think Fox movie channel and I saw it in 35 millimeter one time and always loved it. And it makes total sense that she hates that movie after which she wrote a lot more. Yeah. Which which she she wrote. wrote. And it also makes total sense that she and the husband wrote, uh, the Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson star is born, which I also watched recently, which has some of the grimmest, 70s atmospherics I can imagine. Have you seen True Confessions? Because I think that's the best movie they were ever involved in. No, but I have seen Up Close and Personal, which is really bad, but which I have an affection for because of the Celine Dion song that's on it. The, because you love me. The, the I, Yeah, the Diddy and Dunn Hollywood connection is one that is oddly unsatisfying um uh, you know when you consider how intimately she was a player in hollywood and how much she wrote about it and blah 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 it seems like they they only ever had one foot in the in the in the river of any kind of film project they ever did together and it's very frustrating it, it's it's sort of it's a sort of frustration that i have in general with her 
version of L.A., which everyone in the East, the snooty East, has adopted as this as the final truth about L.A., in which it takes reading Eve Babbitt's her, you know, friendly nemesis to to correct. Um, it's a very dark and gloomy and ultimately, I think, edifying for the Eastern snob version of L.A., but it is one that that hits upon a lot of truth as well. And it's the truth that overlaps with her being a Goldwater girl and observing the uh, the kind of cult leftist narcissistic insanity that unraveled all around her in the 60s and the 70s and that is captured so well in these two books. Um, so Play It As It Lays I also read in college and I'm sure that informed my belief that she had an abortion. Um, she writes about abortion though a lot of other places as well. And it was just like what it, the way she writes in general about society and about, I mean, because it's one thing to look back and say, oh, well, yeah, there were the, uh, the Manson murders happened and these murders happened and those murders happened. No wonder everyone is so, is so crazy in the, or, you know, no wonder everything seemed, no wonder the center is not holding and blah, blah, blah. That's not why the center wasn't holding for her. She was a rich girl from Sacramento who got a, a beautiful entry uh, entry point into New York. Uh, her essay, her final essay in, in slouching, is about leaving New York, and it kind of it's a very good it's a very good goodbye letter to New York. Um, and I'll read a passage of that because it has the perfumes in it later. But her, she had everything going for her. This woman. She she had a career. She was writing for Vogue. She was getting her pieces placed. Every, little pieces were getting placed everywhere. Um, obviously, she's an enormous talent. But she had there's a ghost to this book that is personal and not merely societal. And it's not merely the abortion. What I I didn't know about the greater story. I knew about. I, I suspected fem, feminine intuition wise. I suspected that she had an abortion just because everything she wrote about everything was marked with the same sort of kind of mortal dismay and self-hatred that I've heard reported from women that I've known over the years who've had abortions that they've then felt remorse over. Um, so it's, and, and it was an abortion that if we're, if we're being, we might as well just, we might as well just get it out of, get it out of the way right now since you guessed it, <laughs> but. It's Valley of the Dolls abortion. Did she have to fly to South America? I don't, she, you know, it's very possible that she did go to South America just because that she's had a, a fascination with South America and with, or Central America or both her whole career. Like she wrote a book called Salvador. She wrote a book called, on Miami, but the Cumans, she wrote a book. She was all up into the Iran-Contra affair with Salvador. She, she's, she goes to Mexico all the time. She didn't write about Mexico, but she, they're always like on vacation in Mexico. So it's very possible that there's a spiritual menstrual pool. Searching to, for the ghost of her aborted child in South America. It's, you know, and it's not just the ghost of her aborted child. It's the ghost of the one true love she ever had. Because what happened was, she was in love with this um, this fi- this literary figure who got her first novel published, um, and and uh, let me find what the let me find his name because it's on uh, it's a uh, da 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 um goddamn it I can't whatever I'll find his name later but uh, oh Noel Noel Parmentel. New York literary figure. I forget where I forget where he was holding court, but he was an influential guy. He she was in love with him, and in New York, in the New York essay at the end of this book, she talks about how she lost. She had she had distanced herself from the love of her life. Basically, it he couldn't continue. I mean, it was ultimately his fault, I think, and it was ultimately I think his pressure that she had to get an abortion. I think that was something imposed on her by the fact that she couldn't stay with him and so on. And she kind of, and he kind of dumped her off into the guy who became her husband, Gregory Dunn, uh, John Gregory Dunn, um, who was an Irish Northeasterner, wrote these very kind of like uppity books about Hollywood throughout his career. They worked together and, you know, he's a fairly, he's a sort of mildly annoying figure as I have perceived him, although I haven't read his books and I heard some of them are good. Um, apparently he was a violent and mean drunk and he would be, he would, he would go off the rails all the time. And she kind of, you know, didn't talk that much about that, but that was something she had to constantly deal with. Um, but 
a very familiar through line in these books of a woman having forever, forever been detached and severed from the one true love of her life, Um, which is not to say the only true love, but the one, the last true love of her life would be the accurate way of putting it. And you see tremors of it throughout these two books, especially when she's admiring men, when she's admiring John Wayne. Did you read that one? I did. That one's great. Um, I mean, I think they're all good. I'm going to kind of do a scene by scene. Like, I want to hop like chapter to chapter because each of them has some, almost every single one of them has something really, I think, based and relevant and touching yeah. in it. Um, and and she and you you sense in her admiration also of Jim Morrison, which is something that she writes about in the opening of White Album, um, which if we, if we're up to it, we'll discuss in a separate full session, but. Uh, there is that there is there is an idealized sort of man that she knows she will a kind of love she will never have um and i this tension is sort of just i think strings everything together in terms of her insanity because if you look at her insan if you look at her if you look at her mental kind of her reports of mental breakdown without knowing this there will come a point where you start to say, "You, you're, woman, you are you are running Hollywood practically. You've got everyone eating from your hand in Hollywood. You've got access to all the rich and famous people. They all trust you. They all trust you, and they're all telling you their little stories, and they're, you're revealing them to the larger world. And somehow you're maintaining this aura of cool distance, but you're right up in there, and you're a tough cookie running the show. As much as you feign kind of this uh, diminutive uh, frail, frailty. Um, why are you so, fu- you know, what, why are you so uh, depressed? And that's, that's the, both the limit, that's the mood and then ultimately the limitation of her work. And it kind of takes over, I think, to a point where it's no longer worth the trouble after these two books. But I'll get to that later too, because I think that's, um, you know, that's part of the, that's part of the, bad Joe Didion conversation. And I want to kind of start off with the good Joe Didion conversation, because the fact is that this is a book everyone should read. And it's a book that has a lot of great stuff in it. And it's a book that's politically extremely relevant, right up there with Tom Wolfe's Radical Chic, which in 1973 exposed for all time the comic absurdity of uh, of liberal empathy, charitable endeavor <laughs> with that party mm. where he went to a party, uh, a fundraising party for the Black Panthers in uh, Leonard Bernstein's home. Great work, which we might discuss one day. And this by friend of Tom Wolfe, Joan Didion, th- these books have a lot of glimpses of the same sort of satire um, very early on. And it's something that rings very familiar to observers of modern American power politics in life and so and and culture um so i wanted to get but before i before we start opening the book i wanted to just kind of get your thoughts as someone who to my surprise hadn't read this book before i uh forced it upon you nope i i had only read played as it lays uh slouching towards bethlehem is obviously excellent and a really enjoyable read um I I feel like you're going to be disappointed that I kind of hate her personally. I like her writing, but like she's such a f- essentially frigid and joyless person that I uh, I really like making fun of her. <laughs> like I I really, I really like making fun of her. Like and I can the thing is I can see why it all works so well. I can see why this was so like revolutionary, the new journalism and everything, uh, and her like inserting herself into it. And also it's a case of like, when you see too much of yourself reflected back by someone, you don't like it. Like, like whenever we did David Lynch episodes, my brother always kind of had this weird contempt for David Lynch and he always reminded me of David Lynch. Like, everything he created reminded me of David Lynch. <laughs> uh, and it's like, I can totally see, like, my worst kind of 
excesses in what she does, but but fundamentally, it's just like this is a woman who enjoys nothing. Like the, the I could just find it so hard to like mentally relate to anyone who does not enjoy any like sensual pleasures, and you can just watching her in that movie, you can tell what a like tight ass snob like carefully cutting those little cucumbers for the sandwich and everything i don't know i don't know i'm not at all disappointed to hear this no 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 no. because i that because that's the truth that's 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 her that's her problem and that's her shortcoming you know i've told i've told anna hachian that who admires her a lot and who recently read magical thinking which i have not read but i was scared off of reading because everyone i respected the old time, like old uh, based critics that I knew, that I know and respect, and I'm going to actually read a devastating. I'm curious to read it now too. I'm, I'll, I'll probably read it too, but, <laughs> yeah. but, and I don't want to take away from anyone who who was helped by it, and, and Anna really was. But I told Anna that, like, you know, she's a worthy successor. She can be, I think, as a writer, uh, a better Joan Didion because, a, because the same sort of kind of uh, devastatingly like truthful eye and willingness to be to be witty and kind of cut down with a single line a whole uh, a whole a whole house of cards that's just sat, sitting there but minus the depressiveness that she never shook and that's my that's my criticism with it it gets to be you see uh, her her um play it as it lays is something that as a literary experiment it really works I, I like you read it really fast. It was meant to be. It was. She talks about how it's a novel of spaces, a white space, and how everything happens off screen in this novel, and that's what she tried to accomplish, and she succeeded. But it, goddamn, it is such a. If you take play it as it lays, as your vision of L.A., it it's like it's like oh, okay, your vision of L.A. at three a.m. to three fifteen a.m. of a winter day of a winter night, like it's not. It is not a very broad palette of colors. It's a very well, I, narrow. I can totally see why she hates the movie of Play It As It Lays because it is too. It's so truthful about her uh, essential like mopey negativity that it's like kind of camp, right? So it it seems like it's making fun of her. That's why I like it. I probably will like it too. I couldn't. F- I wanted to it's watch great. it last night. I couldn't fucking find it anywhere. I can't believe nobody's put it out on Blu-ray. Yet I can't fucking find Dan it anywhere. Is so popular. That was also a- another thing. Is one of these weird internet things where even though no one's seen a movie made prior to like 1990, somehow everyone on the entire internet knows intricately who Joan Didion is. I just don't believe it. Like when she died, like every every Zoomer, twenty two year old, whatever, just like, oh yes, Joan Didion. You don't know who Joan Didion is. I just, it was so yeah. fake. Yeah, and this is something that I this is something that I totally. I mean, we should talk a little bit as much as we can, really, about the stupid documentary because it is like, is that just because of Red Scare that everyone pretends to know who Joan Didion is? Because well, I don't recall when I was in high school and into play it as it lays. I don't recall anyone except like my. Uh, like very cultured theater teacher friend saying one word about... No, it was only ever very cultured. It was only ever very cultured people who are like in the journalistic class. And then the the grief novel got like kind of uh, my like feminist, like college age friend who was all tuned into whatever they promoted on NPR... You know, that that was well, that, the, the the grief. It wasn't even a novel. It was just nonfiction. But the grief stuff, her grief period, which all her old friends made fun of her for, by the way, the old people who knew her from the old days, because it was so Joan Didion that she became this national mourning figure. In fact, Pauline Kale hated her or at least made fun of her a lot. And I remember my friend Joseph Epstein, who I'm, who's from whose review I'm going to read later. I remember him saying how much he wished Pauline Kael was still alive to roast Joan Didion for her well, they, for her I'm new sure role as the, national mourner in chief. <laughs> I'm sure you've read the the Barbara Grizzetti Harrison essay making fun of her. Oh uh, fuck no! Maybe I have 19, once. Okay, I just found it while you were like like putting together uh, your mic or whatever, and I really love it. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like a perfect parody 
of her uh, and it's brutal like yeah it's apparently she was really butthurt about it up to the end uh but it's from 1980 and it kind of dissects uh the appeal and the fundamental kind of ease and emptiness of her style my favorite line is didion is like a latter-day scarlet o'hara she will think about whatever it is she thinks about tomorrow when she dabbles her toes in her pool all the while calling attention beguilingly to the hair shirt she has fashioned for herself, <laughs> which may explain why so many male critics find her adorable. Oh, and the beginning, the beginning is brutal. When I'm asked why I do not find Joan Didion appealing, I'm tempted to answer, not entirely facetiously, that my charity does not naturally extend itself to someone whose lavender love seats match exactly the potted orchids on her mantle, someone who has porcelain elephant end tables, someone who has chosen to burden her daughter with the name Quintana Roo. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great. No, in fact, in fact, they were talking about that in her book TV in depth that I listened to last night again after seeing it live twenty years ago uh, yeah. or more. They were talking about that, and she was like, "Yeah, people love. People really do make fun of me a lot." <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, it's like okay. On one hand, we have like Elizabeth Taylor, the ultimate like sen sensual woman who lived life to the fullest, like you know, eating drinking fucking everything and then we have like uh little hair shirt yeah little miss uh, hair aesthetic, shirt torturing herself never eating uh joan didion who you know it, it's so perfect that she likes orchids because i fucking hate orchids uh, I, orchids I are the flower of the 2010s <laughs> i will say the one thing i liked about her um about that documentary the one the one moment in it that I liked is when it talked about how her breakfast at a certain time was a Coca-Cola and a can of salted almonds. Oh, God. Which it sounds... Uh, and the other chick is, you know, the other scene chick is like, I live there and we sat there without talking and it's supposed to be all cool and everything. And I'm like, that sounds awful. You no, know, yeah, it does sound... It, it, but the thing, the fact is that it obviously wasn't that bad. Like, it was obviously, yeah. like, everyone was passing through. It was a constant rock and roll stream of drugs, yeah. and, and and she was just there, and you know she was fucking enjoying it. I you love, know she I was think the, the best, okay, you know, all the marketing of that documentary is all, like, all, like, about how truthful and personal it is and everything, and I think the best moment in it is when they talk about uh, the five-year-old on acid, from slouching towards Bethlehem and she goes and they're like what did you think when you were watching that expecting her to be shocked and she was like oh it was gold pure gold <laughs> so like that moment of total cynicism yeah. uh, that was really great no no and that's where she's at her best she she mm -hmm. can be really funny when she's not fucking that leaning was the only funny part that they allowed oh, no. yeah. in that whole movie and that whole that whole movie was I mean that whole movie is I hate that movie so much. That and it was surreal because I've, I've been talking about Vanessa Redgrave all week because I did an episode on Isadora. And uh, Vanessa Redgrave just shows up and they're just these crones flipping through scrapbooks. Um, yeah, she's like, I what I you know the way she's like Vanessa and Vanessa Redgrave. I mean, and I like her. I've died. Yeah, the yeah, way she just cash. talks about like how they had to, you know, you know, she had to like. Un basically like she was like taking care of her on her deathbed <laughs> studying for that fucking role <laughs> there's, there's some really horrifying like pov shots where you just see didion's like star wars cantina creature <laughs> stick like stick like arms like yeah. you know going around but, um yeah I mean, and there was also an air of elder abuse about that movie. It was. It was. She would have been better off if they had not made that. I mean, I don't know if she would have been because it sells copies. But fuck. it sells copies. But, but it's her fucking like, no know, good. It's her no good nephew. Like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For people like us, it's just it is bad. I mean, I never know how to you know proper. I I I think there's this. T you were you were talking about this. The widow of letters NPR arc that everyone seems to go down. Uh, you know, Susan Sontag had a similar arc. and At and the same time, because my same friend was into Susan Sontag at the same time, because she also put out a, you know, th there was that, like, widow diary something or other at that time. It's the curse of the the woman writer. And when, when Joan Didion died, I tweeted that her biggest, her greatest achievement was that 
she was not a woman writer. And in her best work, she is not a woman writer. I mean, she is a woman, she is a writer, but she is a writer first, and she she rises to people like people get all offended by the woman writer thing, mainly because they're idiots, but but you know, at the legitimate level, it's not about it's not about the fact that you're a woman versus a man. It's about the fact that when you're being a, this woman, you're not being a writer much of the time. So you have to be a writer first, and being a writer first means like seeing the truth past what you want to believe. I was just listening to the Red Scare with whoever that woman is uh, that they had on this novelist, Shtetl, whatever her name is. And it's like, she is just, I just felt like, like, it was maddening. It was so maddening because every time Anna or Dasha said something that was a... Dis, you know, a, a, as is their want to sing like a line of difficult truth about womanhood or whatever. She's like, is that true? Is that, but why does, why do people have to have children? Why? Do, it's like over and over and over again, there is this, ah, 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 why are you, why are you asking me that? Like, why are you saying that? Doesn't that, that, that doesn't sound good, nice. And it's just like, you're not a writer if that's the fucking, those are the fucking questions going on in your mind. These bratty little rejections of obvious truth. You may not, you don't have to accept it as the only truth or the whole truth, nothing but the truth. But when a truth is expressed, you can't be fucking afraid of it because it frays your nerves. And that's what you see over and over again with these like, with, with this whole like movement of, it doesn't encourage serious thinking or feeling or writing um, when you're like embracing these people in their grandma phase, in this in this phase, that's the problem with this documentary, and that's the problem with the last twenty years of Joan Didion, and you know, that's the problem with her whole later phase. She became obviously she became someone who easily served the opposite of what made her good in these in these in these early essays. Well, and you can imagine the sort of essays she would write if she saw that documentary about someone else, you know, Oh my God. In the seventies. She would get rip it. She, a review of her own, by the way, there is a book released, you know, again, as a result of that documentary, they released a book of like unpublished pieces. She had written over the decades called, let me tell you what I mean. And I thought it was one of those late, late life cash grab collections, but I got it anyway and I read it. And actually there's some really good pieces in there all the way up until uh, she has a really good lecture in there called Why I Write, which again, you know, when she's on, when she's being, when she's being cold and funny, she's at her best. And she's just like, just zeroed in on the truth. She's at her best. And there's some really good stuff in there. Um, Up until her last piece on Martha Stewart, which was also good, like, she wrote that in the late '90s, um, and it was a really, it was a really effective. Uh, it was seemingly sympathetic in a like she felt herself almost, I think, in a way uh, represented by Martha Stewart. But uh, and those are all very perceptive. There are perceptive pieces in there, so she she did retain her her eye, I think, through the, through the decades. But as she sort of became this, you know, the prototype for her final form as this New York lib, uh, you know, casting her eye appallingly upon the barbaric carnival of American life without retaining the sense of fun that you need to have if you want to make any sort of sense of American life. She has a very disappointing she has this collection of political she started when she started writing these liptard not, not i mean they're not so liptard they're not they're not bad in that in, in their thinking but they're boring and they're long and they're new york review of books bob silver's style and if you know what that is it's just a fucking slog and it's nothing like slouching towards bethlehem they're collected in this book called political fictions where i found the quote um the quote which describes her politics before it became kind of washed out where she says um let me see hold on she said da, 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 da. she's introducing these pieces which begin with actually which begins with a piece about in 88 about the Jesse Jackson campaign which if you literally just swap the words Jesse Jackson and with Donald Trump and Democrat with Republican could could almost verbatim be published about the Trump campaign. Spiritually, it would be it would be the same kind of like 
point uh, in twenty six the, the twenty sixteen Trump campaign. It was. I so- feel like this woman's hit piece got to her, and she felt the need to be more valib after this because it trashes her reactionary politics and compares her uh, very unfavorably to Ayn Rand in the latter, latter half of it with all that that entails. Oh, God. Um, and uh, if this stuck in her craw so much, I can see it, it causing her to uh, be more of a New York libtard. But, yeah. like, okay, the, the other thing... I can see how like revolutionary this this book and this style of journalism was. I can, but I also think it's easy to imitate, and that's why everyone has done it for half a century. Like everybody, when they're writing this kind of uh, creative nonfiction stuff, writes with exactly this sort of cold removed. I where they are the they're the kind of uh, the, the frosty observer who's too cool for school the Daria uh, as it were and like you know when I was reading the slouching towards Bethlehem essay I was just like what a fucking drag this lady is like I don't know like <laughs> maybe it's because I'm I'm like more sympathetic to liberalism lately in the last few weeks, just because I'm so sick of uh, sick of small-minded conservatives so much. But like, I don't know. Everybody else is like going to San Francisco and taking <laughs> drugs and partying, and she's you know the little like praying mantis like journalist, just like in the corner, not saying anything, filing it all away for her little condemnatory piece like i don't know yeah i, I mean know. that and that was the that was the uh the, that was the uh overwhelming beef that eve babbitt's had about her which is that she was affecting this she's a fake imagine like being one of the people she hung out with and then reading that and she's you know having this memory of her sitting there like daria I mean, um, yeah, which is why I, I'm pretty sure that she was more engaged and cheerful in real life than she lets yeah. on. So it is a fake. It is a it it is a fake. I mean, the 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 her character as 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 she captures it herself in her books is definitely a fake. There's no way she was that dour in real life. I mean, from mm-hmm. what I understand, she wasn't. You know, like mm-hmm. first of all, she was all she was she was met she was. Amphetamined out, from what I understand, during those years herself, yeah. she was not sober. She was not sober at all. She was taking like I think she was like drowning it out with quaaludes to go to sleep, and she was she was all pepped up to write. Um, so she was not like sitting on the sideline. But it is instructive that her the the tone she chose to present as someone who was very involved in all that stuff and knew all these people and they were all at her house every day. Jim Morrison, all of them. Janis Joplin dropping in during, like, she's there in the middle of it. Her, I believe, her book, Slouching Towards Bethlehem is dedicated to Earl McGrath, who I believe is a record producer who was exposed in Chaos, that book by Tom O'Neill about the real, what really happened in the Manson murders, exposed as a total CIA spook who was like, kind of like a, uh, uh, conductor of all this shit, um, you know, socially and like just kind of who's had his hand in everything. I mean, she was in the highest echelons of Hollywood power and in show business power for decades. Like this is not an outsider, but she's but but the but all, as if to make that somehow as if to somehow justify that she's she's shrunk herself in her literary persona into this little fly on the wall kind of basically another thing that really triggers me is that you know after half a century of people imitating her and imitating those beats those little beats where she depicts something some ridiculous people some stupid people or low class or whatever with this kind of allegedly sort of cool aloof objective thing and then it ends on some kind of deflating deflating subtly satirical note it like reminds me of the the current rash of reporting on like this 
right wing whatever scene where those BuzzFeed people are clearly like fascinated by whatever they're writing about, but they have to word it in a sort of snooty uh, kind of faux objective condemnatory tone. Lots of things triggering me, but you can see the influence of it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, well, you know, she's not the only one who made this genre popular. But I, I was, I was, she's not the only one who kind of like, but, but she's definitely the most, probably the most influential because of the fact that every woman reads, every woman writer, I feel like, kind of reads her at some point and is like, that's yeah. literally me. Uh-huh. But misses all the thi- like, if that was literally you you wouldn't become a lib. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's the part that gets me because like, I do believe that there, there is something here to be learned from. And it's not to be a Buzzfeed journalist who hangs around with right wingers and then writes a little, uh, you know, writes a little, uh, uh, fly on the wall type of piece. Uh, that's not what it is. What it is, is to see through the bullshit. Like seeing through bullshit is something every writer should be able to do. Um, what you do with what you see is a different question entirely that, that, that depends upon mm. a, a number of things. Um, and ideally is something, is, is, is something you choose to handle with not complete, not with, without complete joylessness, let's just say. Mm. Um, but like the seeing through bullshit part, there is like the, the, it's not, they don't seem to be learning what they should be learning from her, you know? Which is which happens often when somebody becomes this sort of like classroom grandma of letters, uh-huh. um, and I mean I was going to say earlier like it's very instructive that she was involved in everything, and at the same time Tom Wolfe wrote Electric Kool Aid Acid Test about Ken Casey and you know that whole LSD movement. Also, he was which he was also had a front seat for when he was writing it, and you know that's a whole. That's a completely different emotional register. I mean, you don't have to know, you don't have to have read it, that particular one, to know, to just get the sense from Tom Wolfe that you know, Tom Wolfe was a joyful writer and he himself was completely a sober individual. I mean, he did, for the purposes of that book, drop LSD like once in a room alone in his, in his suit, you know, whatever, uh, as uh-huh. a matter, as a journalistic, <laughs> as a matter of d- d- due diligence. But like his, he is not, he's like, he, like that New York times woman who took the edibles a few years ago. Like, <laughs> wrote the, yeah. Wrote that thing, you know what I'm talking about? Basically. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a, it sounds comical, but in Tom Wolf's case, he literally gets away with anything because he's, yeah. he's so great. And there were, there were friends like going back to when they were kids, um, in Sacramento, there's a whole long thing, by the way, Didion and Wolf, but it's a very, and I don't want to say like, I'm not saying that one should have been the other, but there's a lot to learn from. And Tom Wolf was also uh, crystal clear in his vision of seeing through the bullshit as much as he also lo- also was, saw the good parts and the, and dramatized it all and made it, made it a much more living and brief. I mean, you could you you can you, you know it all you have to have done is read one thing by Tom Wolfe to kind of Did get Didion it. Did Didion ever get as directly racist as Tom Wolfe? Well, there funny you should ask because there are some moments here that are that would certainly be called racist today and of course everything that now everything that that you see published today that like has to take measure of Joan Didion has to get, you know, gets into the whiteness factor and how she was, she was only writing about white California and so on and so forth. But there's some real, there's some, I mean, like, here's an example. Um, there's more than one example, but there's, there's an example that I just read today, peeking into the white album where she's talking about, I'm going to read it. Um, She's talking about uh, uh, Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver and so on when, like, during a particular a particular legal episode in Huey in with Huey Newton of the of the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to read this whole thing because it's pretty funny. And there, there's another there's another moment in slouching towards Bethlehem in Hawaii that I'm going to read after it. But this this gets at your question more quickly. So this is a, a, a this is a report of his. She's quoting a report 
of his psycho of the like the nurse or whatever at the hospital or whatever. I heard a moaning and a groaning, and I went over, and it was this Negro fellow was there. He had been shot in the stomach, and at the time, he didn't appear in any acute distress, and so I said, I'd see, and I asked him if he was a Kaiser, if he belonged to Kaiser, and he said, yes, yes, get a doctor, can't you see I'm bleeding? I've been shot, now get someone out here. And I asked him if he had his Kaiser card, and he got upset at this, and he said, come on, get a doctor out here, I've been shot. I said, I see this, but you're not in any acute distress. So I told him we'd have to check to make sure he was a member. Kaiser is a hospital in L.A., by the way. Mm -hmm. And this kind of upset him more. And he called me a few nasty names and he said, now get a doctor out here right now. I've been shot and I'm bleeding. And he took his coat off and his shirt and he threw it on the desk there. And he said, can't you see all this blood? And I said, I see it. And it wasn't that much. And so I said, well, you'll have to sign our admission sheet before you can be seen by a doctor. And he said... I'm not signing anything. And I said, you cannot be seen by a doctor unless you sign the admission sheet. And he said, I don't have to sign anything and a few more choice words. So Didion quotes this in a, uh, you know, deep into a series of, uh, uh, of center not holding sort of passages. And, um, and then she follows it up with, this is an excerpt from the testimony before the Alameda County Grand Jury of, Car- of Corrine Leonard. The nurse in charge of the Kaiser Foundation Hospital emergency room in Oakland at 5.30 a.m. on October 28, 1967. The Negro fellow was, of course, Huey Newton, wounded that morning during the gunfire which killed John Frey. For a long time, I kept a copy of this testimony pinned to my office wall on the theory that it illustrated a collision of cultures, a classic instance of an historical outsider confronting the established order at its most petty and impenetrable level. This theory was shattered when I learned that Huey Newton was in fact an enrolled member of the Kaiser Foundation Health Plan, i.e., in Nurse Leonard's words, a Kaiser. So there you go. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so that's a good little moment of, um, of voter ID, if you will, uh, type of episode from the 60s involving a guy who's shot in the middle of political gunfire. And a similar... Not similar, but in that same vein in her essay on Hawaii in Slouching Towards Bethlehem, which I'm going to find. Um, which, you know, poor, poor, poor Joan, where she's, she goes to Hawaii to try to avoid getting a divorce, you know, for like a long period of time with her husband. <laughs> I mean, that's pure. It's that, always, always on these miserable vacations. And yeah, all these like, yeah, endless vacations. Oh my God, there's. A character in this essay is Henry Kaiser. <laughs> no relation, I think, unless it's the same guy who founded the hospital or paid for it or whatever. But then here somewhere she says, um, let me find the passage that I, that, I, that I want. I want so bad. Um, hold on, hold on. I'm going to have to search my screenshots for a second. It's hard to keep track of all this shit. The docket. <laughs> the docket. Um, I've been using tabs, like the, the little oh, colored things that you oh, put on books. Yeah, I have, yeah. To fig- I have to figure out a system. Okay, I found it. I have to... I- to do tabs and then I have to write an index of what the tabs contain because oh. I refuse to mark on books. Yeah, I don't I don't like marking either. I don't even like like highlighting or anything like that. Uh-uh. I I will not touch a book with a pen unless it's like maybe sometimes I'm giving it as a gift. But anyway, go on. So, okay, here it is. Even among those who are considered island liberals, the question of race has about it, to anyone who has lived through these hypersensitive past years on the mainland, a curious and rather engaging ingenuousness. There are very definitely people here who know the Chinese socially, one woman told me. They have them to their houses. The uncle of a friend of mine, for example, has Chin Ho to his house all the time. End quote. Although this seemed a statement along the lines of some of my best friends are Rothschilds, I accepted it in the spirit in which it was offered, just as I did the primitive progressivism of an island teacher who was explaining, as we walked down a corridor of her school, about the miracles of educational integration the war had brought. Look, she said suddenly, 
grabbing a pretty Chinese girl by the arm and wheeling her around to face me. You wouldn't have seen this here before the war. Look at those eyes. <laughs> so, that reminds me of my, my favorite uh, one that I read was the Joan Baez one. The Joan Baez one is really good. That is the funniest one to me. That the whole the whole of it reminds me of Robert Altman's Nashville, which we talked about not long ago. It's a it's a um, there is a great yeah there's a great like recurring basically anytime there's some sort of pa- of she this is a recurring theme of slouching towards Bethlehem where where um and actually both of them where there's some sort of political pageantry or activism going on and she is not buying any of it yeah. ever and the running theme is is really that this is a middle class, like, you know, as we see today, this is a hobby of essentially bourgeois people who have been somehow removed from the real dramas of life and who need to make something exciting for themselves. And this is basically her take on every form of political activism she observes in the 60s and 70s, up and down. Every single time it comes to the same thing. Um, whether it's, whether it's the, uh, the, she was at the DSA meeting she reports from in the beginning of White <laughs> Album, the other one, the ones she reports from here, Comrade Lasky, the Comrade Lasky chapter is a good one too, early yeah. on, because Comrade Lasky, so he's this communist, uh, act, he's a communist, you know, revolutionary in LA who goes around passing out pamphlets, uh, to nobody in particular, trying to sell pamphlets and then they have meetings uh, um, with the of his fellow communists who consider the American Communist Party to be sellouts, so they're the real communists, and da 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 da, da. and it's you know it's basically like the t- the typical cult um, kind of vibe, you know, where it's like these little people who think that they are on the cusp of changing the world forever, and who are ult- uh, completely on the margins of anybody's consciousness, and who think and who are so who kind of compensate for their totally meaningless existence by extreme levels of paranoia. So, you know, he's talking, he's like, she's meeting with this young communist. He's 25. He reminds you of a very, of a very particular type of Twitter account, you know, like the The way she describes the vagueness of the goals there. The, the this is perfect. Yeah, that like hierarchy of communist goals there. Oh, I, f- I found my favorite line from the Joan Baez one. A month or so after her appearance at Berkeley, Joan Baez talked to Ira Sandpearl about the possibility of tutoring her for a year. She found herself among politically knowledgeable people, he says, and while she had strong feelings, she didn't know any of the socioeconomic, political, historical terms of nonviolence. It was all vague, she interrupts, nervously brushing her hair back. I want it to be less vague. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the the line, the kind of, um, the ultimate, the, the, the passage from the Comrade Lasky one, uh, which I'll read right now, that kind of captures what all of her, the similar ones are, um, is the following. As it happens, I am comfortable with the Michael Laskies of this world, with those who live outside rather than in, those in whom the sense of dread is so acute that they turn to extreme and doomed commitments. I know something about dread myself, well, no, Dajon, and appreciate the elaborate (laughs) systems with which some people manage to fill the void, appreciate all the opiates of the people, whether they are as accessible as alcohol and heroin and promiscuity, or as hard to come by as faith in God or history. But of course I yeah and then she continues I don't know if this was I wanted to read this but um this is this is also touching by the way the next paragraph But of course I did not mention dread to Michael Lasky whose particular opiate is history capital H I did suggest depression did venture that it might have been quote depressing for him to see only a dozen or so faces a dozen or so likes at his last May Day de- <laughs> demonstration 
at his last May Day demonstration, but he told me that depression was an impediment to the revolutionary process, a disease afflicting only those who do not have ideology to sustain them. Michael Lasky, you see, did not feel as close to me as I did to him. I talk to you at all, he said, only as a calculated risk. Of course you function, your function is to gather information for the intelligence services. Basically, you want to conduct the same probe the FBI would carry out if they could put us in a chair. He paused and tapped the small red book with his fingernails. And yet, he said finally, there's a definite advantage to me in talking to you. Because of one fact, these interviews provide a public record of my existence. So true. So true. Poor Michael Lasky of the CPUSA ML. <laughs> Marxist-Leninist is the ML, by the way. They're co- they're, it's called the CPUSA ML to distinguish themselves from the American Communi- the Communist Party of America. Um, Can which, you believe people still fall They still fucking stuff? do that. People in our people circle. People still do that. <laughs> yeah, we have to put up with them. <laughs> they, they still do it. They have they, it in their handles. They said, and Marxist-Leninist, they have... People have it in their names. They identify it. It's unreal. It's unreal. Tell it. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. <laughs> Jeez. It's, it's, um, yeah. Now I will say like, and there's a lot of, I love her, her. Okay. So the piece on speaking of heroic men, um, well, let's get it to, let's, it's about time for our, I think, uh, regularly scheduled cigarette break. Okay. So sure. when we come back, we're going to talk about the piece on the, uh, some of her talk, her stuff on heroic men. I think the, uh, you know, we, 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 we opened the uh, shit gates on her really early. So I think we need to, you know, do a little bit more appreciation of the good parts of this um, afterwards. Um, and, and get into some of the, I think some of the politically astute stuff, um, where, which I wish she did not detach from so completely and, uh-huh. um, you know, kind of go down the, go down the list of these scenes, uh, when we're back, um, and, and again, return again to what I think, cause, cause you, you preempted it cause right away I could tell that you were going to realize this. Cause if I had somebody on who is a Joan Didion fanatic, this would never come up, but what you identified, which is the 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 app the the total lack of enjoyment of anything, <laughs> it's not like it's 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 not just a it's not a it's not just a bug or just it's not a feature it's a bug I guess is what I'm trying to say it's not a feature it's a bug and it's not a bug that is merely um kind of part and parcel with the overall thing it's a bug that 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 ultimately I think, you know, like really crippled the latter half of her career. Um, and it's something that especially because the mood and the temper and the time in which she is writing these books is so relevant to our own spiritually, which I, you know, I'll, I still hold to that. Um, it's all the more important not to take the gloom out of, these books with you. And it's really, it's really something to identify and to identify the problem and the limitation of that gloom, which is what we're going to do after you smoke your cigarette. And after the, the people, the looky, the looky lose who aren't, don't pay money for podcasts are, are ushered out of this room and told to go back home, get into bed. Now it's, you know, get the, the, now, now the after hours part is going to start. The adult, adult portion is going to start. Okay. Okay. You gotta subscribe. You gotta subscribe. If you want to hear more, you gotta subscribe. Patreon.com slash filthy Armenian. It's actually cheaper than a latte medium. Episodes of Scandal and Intimacy shall be heard behind the paywall by the bourgeoisie.
sorry about that. Uh, thank you for listening. Please rate, review, spread the word to your friends. And if you can, subscribe for the final 90 minutes of this episode and a lot more of the complete adventure.